This morning's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 to 31. That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. This is God's word. We're resuming our series today on idols of the heart. And what's an idol? An idol is anything that you place apart from God that you say is something that you need uh, to build a sense of worth in your life. And today we're going to be focusing on this concept of blessing, uh, which really means that you know, if you want to increase your potential, if you want to increase your options, if you want to increase your freedom or your joy, you need a certain thing that says, yes, this is what I need to build myself. This is what I need because if I can just build myself, then I feel okay. Then I'm okay. Then I'm all right. Then I'm justified. Then I'm righteous. And we're going to look at the life of Jacob. It's one of the great stories of the Bible. A very relatable character. Very relatable. He's a real person. I mean, he's a very relatable person. Um, this passage in particular, marks the turning point of Jacob's life. Jacob is really a changed man after this episode, after this event in his life. How does it happen? He wrestled God. Jacob wrestles God. Now, it's more than a metaphor, I have to tell you. It's more than a metaphor. Jacob encountered God personally in wrestling him. Now, how does that, how does that happen? How did he do that? Rudolf Otto, he's an early 20th century philosopher, his seminal piece of literature, his work, his seminal work was called The Idea of the Holy. And uh, in it, he says that it's really easy to be drawn into what we call the holy. What we call, when you encounter something that is holy, when you encounter someone that is holy uh, or beautiful, we're easily taken by that person. We're easily drawn into that person. But the closer you come to this person, it's also a, there's also a sense of dread. There's a sense of fear. There's a sense of danger. You become insecure around someone who's beautiful. You become insecure around someone who's holy. And so, if you, as an example, if you take a campfire, a campfire is warm. A campfire is beautiful. A campfire, you want to get close to this campfire. It's bright. It's warm. It's beautiful. But if you get too close, what happens? That warmth starts to consume you. That brightness starts to consume you that beauty starts to overwhelm you. Throughout the Old Testament, God appears as a fire. Why? Because his holiness consumes us. 
His truth consumes us. His goodness consumes us. His beauty, left alone, without a shield, consuming. So, when you draw near to God, you're really up against a hurricane. You're really up against a storm, a wind. Abraham, when he encounters God, there's a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. Moses, when he encounters God, there's a a blazing bush. There's a pillar of fire. There's a violent wind. Isaiah, when he encounters God, he falls to the ground and he says, Woe is me, this great orator in his day. Woe is me, he says, for I am a man of unclean lips. As powerful and as as well-known and as gifted he was, he says, It's my lips, my greatest strength. Still, he falls down in weakness. Because when you get too close, you realize you're doomed. You've met your doom. That's what Jacob comes up against. And so there are three points we're going to go into today. Um, The background to this narrative, the climax of this narrative, the resolution of this narrative. We're going to talk about the background, the middle, and the end. That's what we're really going to focus on today. First, we're going to look at the background. God, God calls Abraham. Abraham is Jacob's grandfather. And uh, way earlier, about 15 chapters earlier, Uh, God says to Abraham, the world is broken, the world is violent, but I'm going to redeem it. The world is given to violence and wickedness, but through your family, I will redeem the world. And this is a promise. That's what he says. Uh, One of your descendants is going to come and be the child of promise. And in every generation of descendants, one child will be the savior, this messianic seed, and it's going to pass down from generation to generation. One child will be blessed, and through that child, another child will be born. And this is going to happen four generations until the ultimate Messiah will be born. So through Abraham, Isaac is born. But then, through Isaac, there's a conundrum. Why? Because Isaac gives birth to twins. Well, not Isaac giving birth, but his wife gives birth to twins, right? And Esau is born first. And then Jacob comes after, right after, immediately, clutching the heel of, of Esau as he's born. And so Rebekah, the mother, Rebekah, uh, uh, Isaac's wife, he, he, she inquires about this. And then here's a prophecy that the elder will serve the younger. That Jacob will be the child of promise, not the elder son, Esau. Rebekah, she gets it. She gets it, but it's incredibly unconventional because society and the culture of their day is governed by this law of primogeniture. Culturally, societally, the elder son was expected to lead. And so the elder son was favored. The wealth of the family was centralized around the elder son. And Isaac, what does he do? He hides behind this culture. And, and God says, the younger person is going to lead, but Isaac essentially is saying no. And he favors Esau. And he dotes on Esau. He loved Esau. Now, Isaac, he gets older, and he's pretty much at this age where he's going blind, and he's, he's on the verge of death, and he's preparing to give his blessing, not to Jacob, but to the elder son, Esau. And so Jacob, knowing the prophecy, Jacob understanding it, Jacob getting it, resents his father, fighting for the approval of his father. What does he do? He disguises himself as Esau, and he steals the blessing. And and the blessing, it's more than just land. It's more than just wealth. It's the favor of the Father. But more importantly, it's the favor of God. God's favor. This will be your destiny. The blessing is reaching your fullest potential. That's what it means. You are the one that will reach the fullest potential of our family, the fullest potential of our clan and our generation. 
Now, Jacob steals this blessing. Isaac, he realizing, realizing what's happened, he's trembling, but he submits to it. Not Esau. Esau is impetuous. Esau is vindictive. Esau, he wants to kill his brother. And so Jacob, he, wants, he runs away from home. He runs away from home, and as a result, he loses his family, loses his people, he loses his land. He's poor, he's rootless, he's friendless. That's Jacob, this man of lies, this, this thief, this crook. He's lost everything around him. But God draws near to Jacob. God draws near. He appears to Jacob in a dream. This is Genesis chapter 28. He appears to Jacob in a dream, and he assures him, he says, I will be with you. And Jacob responds, and he says, well, if you really help me, then I will serve you. Now, that's religion. Religion is you're always making deals with God. You're always negotiating with God. If I obey, then you will bless me, right? Over time, Jacob starts to amass wealth. Jacob actually starts to build. He's got two wives. He's got 11 sons. He's got flocks and herds with him. And so plenty of livestock, He's building assets, but he's tired, and he's restless. He's building his net worth, but he's got no sense of self-worth. And so he's tired, and he's constantly working, and he's constantly, he, he still needs that approval. That he, you know, he stole it and, it, and he just doesn't feel like he has a sense of worth. And so he knows it's time to go home. He needs to face his brother. He needs to meet Esau. Why? Because Esau is the one person, the one thing that's been keeping him from the life that he wants. He's restless. He wants his family back. He wants his land back. He wants his people back. He needs to face Esau. So we get to Genesis chapter 32, this, this chapter. Jacob, what he does is in preparing to meet with Esau, being on the run all his life, he divides his family into two camps. And you see this because in verse 7, very early in the chapter, he says there's great fear. He's, he's afraid. And so he divides his family into two camps, thinking that if Esau comes, at least the other side can escape. He gathers an enormous endowment, lots of gifts, and he starts to send them to Esau in waves. He sends them gifts of money and livestock, whatever he can to pacify Esau, whatever he can to flatter his brother. He sends everyone ahead with his possessions. And in verses 22 and 23, we realize here, we see here, Jacob is alone. What's he doing? He's putting himself at Esau's mercy. He's saying, I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm making myself vulnerable in front of you. And that's where we are in this passage. That's the background. Now, the second point, we're going to go right to the climax because, because it escalates pretty quickly. By the time you get to this passage, Jacob is in the dark. Everything is gone. All that he's been blessed with, everything that he's built, it's all gone. He sent them ahead. And he knows if Esau comes and attacks one, at least the other side can escape. The other side can run away. It's as if it's in the dark. It's as if the sun has set on Jacob's life again. Everywhere you see Jacob, most of the time, things that are happening, they're happening in the dark. And now it's as if the sun has set on his whole life. Verses 20 to 24, he's, he's, he's alone. He's by this incredible river. It's almost a picturesque view of Eden. They say the Jabbok River was like Eden. And so he's kind of down to, to uh, his, his bare essentials. 
and he's alone in the dark, and he's got peace, and he wants to think about this. The night before, he's about to meet his brother, and he's preparing. By chapter 32, we, we hear, we read that Jacob begins to, he begins to pray. Up until this point, he hasn't been praying. Up until this point, he hasn't sought God. He hasn't acknowledged God. He hasn't been thankful for God. He's not looking for God. He's completely alone, and now he's beginning to pray. Suddenly, he realizes he's not alone. Jacob is not alone. Verse 24, a man comes and wrestles Jacob. Literally, the text says the man came from behind Jacob and Jacobed him. The word Jacob means deceiver, coming from behind, clutching at the heel. And basically, the text here says a man came and Jacobed Jacob. And they wrestle all night. Now, what does it mean then to encounter God? What does it mean to encounter God? The text shows here that sometimes... Very often in our lives, encountering God is wrestling Him. Encountering God is wrestling Him, metaphorically speaking. What does that mean? One, encountering God is a personal experience. Jacob was alone. It means that when you encounter God, it has to be personal. It has to be alone. Community is critical. Here at our church, we say community is an essential. We are, it's one of our core values. Community is critical. Sunday worship is absolutely necessary, but neither of those are sufficient. You can have all these things and still be incredibly lost if God is not personal in your life. To encounter God, to encounter the reality of God, who He is has to penetrate you deeply to the core of your values. What that means is that the character of God, the laws of God, the holiness of God, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, those things have to shape you. It has to be personal. Why is that important? It's because the real crises in our lives, friends, think about this. The real crises in your life, if you're going through a crisis right now, you would understand this. You face them alone. Whether it's sickness, whether it's tragedy, whether it's death, whether it's tremendous hurt, whether it's sin, whether it's being sinned against, even if you have people around you, you need a personal relationship with God or else you're completely alone. I mean, if you don't have a relationship with God, you're completely alone. And that is the real terror. That is the real tragedy and the real terror. Now, the second thing you need, what, what it means to say that you're wrestling with God, is uh, it requires focus. Jacob and this man wrestled all night. And they went point for point. They matched each other point for point. That means that you have a plan. You have a course of actions. You have a trajectory. You have it all laid out for you. You've schemed your way into it or you've worked your way into it, which is still scheming your way. You've planned your life a certain way and you're, you're just trudging forward, but then something happens all of a sudden and it shifts your plans. It shifts your course, the trajectory of your life. And all of a sudden, you know what happens? You start thinking about God, Right? Some of us, we don't start thinking about God until something shifts in our lives and all of a sudden we're for it's almost like we're forced. We've been put on a different trajectory and all of a sudden you start thinking about God. Some of us are friends, right, who've been rejecting the notion of God, rejecting the no notion of going to church all their lives and all of a sudden something happens and they say, maybe I should start attending church. Tell me more about this. Jacob is thinking this. Tonight I'm expecting to prepare to wrestle the man who pretty much ruined my life. 
but I'm spending all night wrestling this man instead. I'm preparing for one wrestling match, but instead I'm wrestling this man. So he focuses all of his energy and all of his time and all of his strength all night. That's what's happening. Wrestling requires, it's a personal thing. It's a deeply personal thing. It requires focus. The third thing it requires is conflict. It's a fight. At the end of the day, wrestling is a fight. There's ups and there's downs. There's reversals. You know you're developing a relationship with God when you actually start to argue with him. Think about that. In the beginning of any relationship that we have, everything's great. We call that the honeymoon period. When you start a relationship, everything's great. You agree about everything. You agree on everything. But you know that that relationship isn't real until you begin to fight. Because that's when you start to see what the other person really wants. When you start to fight with someone, that's when you start to see what the person really values, what the person really believes, what the person really trusts. A God that you can't argue with or a God that can't argue with you, a God that doesn't challenge you is not God. A God that you can't argue with, a God that doesn't challenge you or argue with you is a God that doesn't exist. Today, everybody questions God. We live in a society where everyone questions God. Everyone questions the Bible. But if you think about it, is it really right or is it even sensible to question God on everything but then get angry when he questions you on everything? You see that? Is it really sensible uh, to question God on everything and not allow him to question you, your habits, your pride, your selfishness, your view of sex? If you say, you know, I don't really like that, then you don't have a relationship. Think about it. Any relationship that you have, when you get together and you first start out by saying, you know, I don't really like this, that relationship is going to start out very poorly, right? You don't really have a relationship. But when you question him and allow him to question you, what's happening is you're starting to relate with one another. You're starting to learn. You're starting to come to an understanding. What's happening? God is becoming personal. Lastly, wrestling is suffering. There's darkness. There's weakness. Sometimes you get maimed. Sometimes there's excruciating pain and you're just maimed. Why does the man wear Jacob down? Why does he wrestle him all night, wearing him down? This man had to shake him up in order to wake him up. You get that? You see that? In verse 25, the man dislocates Jacob's hip. And so Jacob's in excruciating pain. I mean, he is reeling. Up until this point, everything's been evenly matched. In fact, there were clues that Jacob was winning the match. The man saw that he could not overpower Jacob. That's verse 25. Then all of a sudden, he touches Jacob by the hip, and Jacob's hip is just thrown out. His leg is paralyzed, and then Jacob realizes that this man is not who he thought. He has incredible power. He has incredible force. He's been merely restraining himself all night, and then the horror begins to dwell, begins to dawn on Jacob. Because the man says, verse 26, he says, let me go for it is daybreak. Then it starts to dawn on him, literally, who this man is. You know, at night, you can't see. In those days, there was no electricity. So at night, there was nothing. You can't see anything. It's pitch black. So when it's pitch black, you could be face-to-face with a person and not know what he looks like. Not, you can't see his face. Not even close up. Everything is hidden. 
but at daybreak, you're able to see the man's face. And Jacob realized that this man who's been holding himself back the entire night, almost kind of toying with Jacob, but not really, just holding back, restraining, now he's actually protecting Jacob. He's saying, you have to let me go. Trust me, you have to let me go. Dawn is breaking. And then he realized who this man was. And then he realized the real problem in his life. He realized that everything he thought about God Everything he thought about himself, everything he thought about life is utterly wrong, completely misconceived, misinterpreted. That's what he realized. And it's very interesting, right? The man says, let me go. Before, Jacob was trying to negotiate with God. Jacob's trying to manipulate God. Jacob's trying to control God, make deals with God. That's religion, really. Essentially, that's what religion is. Jacob's trying to escape God. He did this by controlling his circumstances, He did this by cheating people. He did this by manipulating people. He did this by lying to people and deceiving people. He's trying to control his circumstances all through his deception, all through his lies. After all, his name is Jacob, and the word Jacob means deceiver. Now, why did he do this? Why did he do all that? It's because Esau's always been his problem. All his life, Esau was the reason why Jacob would do the things that he would do. Esau was the reason for all the wrongs in his life. From the moment he was born, Esau was born first, so he's clutching at Jacob's heel, right? That's, that's, that's Jacob, always wrestling Esau. From the moment he was born, Esau always stood between himself and the life that he wanted. But now he realizes Esau was never the problem all along. Jacob's been fighting God all his life. Jacob's been wrestling God all his life. And because he's been wrestling God, he's been wrestling himself all his life. He's been wrestling his name, deceiver, all his life. He's been trying to do away with this name that he's got. And he realizes here that the problem is him. The problem is me all along. The problem is my sin all along. God says, let me go. Jacob says, I will not let you go. I need you to bless me. I need you to bless me, he says. I've been trying to get this blessing on my own all my life. I wanted the righteousness. I wanted the approval. I wanted the favor all my life, and I've been working on my own, and it's only led me to anger. It's led to destruction. It's led to vindictiveness. It's led to addiction, to my wealth, to my scheming, to my escape, and I realized I've been angry at God all my life. I've been angry at God, resentful of God. I thought it was my family. I thought it was my brother. I've been resentful of God all my life, for my life, because I've been running all my life, because of my lies, because of my deceiving. I've been wrestling all because of my name. Verse 27, the man says, then, what is your name? He says, what is your name? And Jacob says, my name is Jacob. My name is Jacob. It's remarkable. You have to understand this is very remarkable. Why? Because the first time Jacob was asked his name, was in Genesis chapter 27. His father Isaac is blind and he can't see. And Jacob is dressed up like his brother Esau to come and steal the blessing. And his father asks, who is this? What is your name? And Jacob lies to steal. And he says, my name is Esau. I am Esau, your firstborn. That's what he says. This time now, years later, broken, clutching, at the heel, again, clutching at the leg of this man. He is just absolutely maimed, in excruciating pain. 
This person who's just destroyed his life, all of his plans to meet Esau, to resolve his own life. Now it's over. It's over. The man asks, what is, his, what is your name? And knowing the consequences, Jacob tells the truth. He says, my name is Jacob. Why is that so important? You know, Jacob is the messianic seed. The prophecy says he's the messianic seed. He's the seed of the promise, but he's staring at the promise himself. He's literally staring into the promise himself. And then he realizes the ultimate terror in being asked who he is. In Genesis chapter 3, there was another prophecy. God, in Genesis chapter 3, upon Adam and Eve's sin, God says the seed of the woman, Eve, will crush the head of the deceiver, will crush the head of the serpent, the deceiver. And now here they are, centuries later, the seed of the man, the woman, asks Jacob his name. What is your name? And Jacob knows, I'm staring into the promise and I'm going to die. I deserve to die. But he comes clean. Knowing what could happen, he comes clean and he says, that's me. That's me. I'm Jacob. I am a deceiver. I am the deceiver. I am the sin. I am sin. In other words, he's saying, I deserve to die. I know I'm meant to die. I deserve to die. I'm the deceiver. I am sin. I am the enemy. But even if it costs me my life, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Notice, Jacob can't run. He's maimed. Jacob can't escape. He doesn't even try. You don't see him trying. Notice there's no more pride. He's no longer trying to manipulate God. He's no longer trying to negotiate with God. He's got nothing to offer. He's got nothing to bring to the table here. Jacob is just broken and he's desperate, and he says, I need you to bless me. Only you can bless me. Up until this point, Jacob's been using God. He's been using God. He's saying, help me to get wealth. Help me to get a wife. Help me to get this blessing, and then I will worship you. Now he says, I cannot let you go. You are the blessing, so I can't let you go. You are what I need. I need you to bless me. You are true beauty, but instead I look for Rachel, and it's costed me decades. It's cost me my family. It's costed me 14 years of labor. You are true riches, but what did I do? I stole for that. I cheated for that. I manipulated people for that. I've been vindictive. I've been homesick. I've been alone because of that. You are the true blessing. You are the blessing, but I've deceived, and I am the curse. You are the blessing. I'm the curse. And I realize it's you. You are my antithesis. You are the one I've been wrestling all my life. And yet you are the one I've needed all my life. Verse 29, he says, what is your name? He looks at the man and he says, what is your name? What he's saying is, I want to see you. I want to know you. To know somebody's name, to know the name. He's saying, you know, all these other things I've pursued in my life, I thought they would satisfy me. They don't satisfy. They were never meant to satisfy. I need you. I'm clutching at you. I'm clinging to you. I need you. I need you as a motivational center in my life. Everything else that has ever motivated me has led me to ruin. I need you in my life. 
I'd rather die seeing you and knowing you than being blind to you with all these other things in my life. God says, I will, basically this is what God is saying in our lives, friends. I will only come into your life when you see that not having me is a source of all of your problems and having me is the only solution. I will only come into your life when you see that not having me is a source of all your problems and having me is your only solution. So we have the background and Jacob's pursuit of this blessing. We have the climax Jacob broken and desperate and maimed. What's the resolution? How did this episode end? How did this narrative end? Does it end in a tie? Verse 28, God says, You will no longer be Jacob. Your name will be Israel because you struggle with God and with men and have overcome. In other words, your name used to be Jacob. Your name used to be liar. Your name used to be deceiver. Your name used to be the enemy. But now I declare you the winner. What is he saying? What does that mean? He's saying, Jacob, you've won because you've given in. All your life you've been trying to fight and overcome and control matters and take matters in your own hands. But now you've finally figured it out. You've given in. You've given up. You've surrendered. And that's why you win. God saw, verse 25, God says, the man saw he could not overpower Jacob. It looks at that moment that as if Jacob has won. But Jacob is wrenched. Jacob is reeling. Just a second later, just an instant later, Jacob is wrenched in his reeling. God is actually keeping his own power down so that he wouldn't destroy Jacob. And so he touches him to remind him, to show him the power that he has. Jacob has been trying to win all his life, trying to overcome that which cannot be overcome. He's trying to overcome power with his own power. He's trying to overcome power with a capital P with his own power until he realized he could not overpower power. He could not overpower God. And then he realized who he was wrestling, that he literally is riding the hurricane. He's riding the storm. He's in the center of the storm. And that's when you realize how powerless you really are. And so he's reeling in pain, reeling in desperation. He's clinging to God for the blessing until it's daybreak. He says, I will, man says, let me go. He says, I will not let you go. I need to see you. I need to know you. I need to know your name throughout the Old Testament. To see God's face is to be intimate with him. And we say that today, right? When you get into an argument with someone, you say, you put the hand up, right? What you're saying, I don't want to see you. I don't want you to see me, right? You say, I don't, get out of my face. Get away from me. What you're saying is, I'm cutting intimacy from you. Right? To see God's face, to know God is to be blessed by God. To know his name is to know him, is to see him, is to be blessed. We call that the beatific blessing. Numbers chapter 6. If you've ever been in a church, you've probably heard Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6 can be summed up as what we call the benediction. Benediction means the good word, the blessing. What is the blessing? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. All three things mean the same thing. That is grace, that is face, that is peace. It's all the same thing. It's to be blessed. To see God's face is to be intimate with God. It's to be blessed. 
And that's what Jacob is saying. I understand it's daybreak. I understand it's going to cost me my life. But that's what I need. You are what I've needed all along. And all my life, I've been resisting you. All my life, I've been resisting your will and your plan. And I had my own plan. I've been trying to overpower you with my idea of life. And I realize now, as I'm staring into you, you are what I've needed all along. And all these things, they've satisfied me for a little while, but they don't satisfy ultimately. And I realize I've been wrestling, this physical wrestling is a picture of my entire life. I've been wrestling you and resisting you, encountering you all my life. Verse 28, Jacob is given a new name. God says, you've overcome. You win. Before your name was deceiver, you were a loser. You were the enemy and you will lose. God says now, I declare you winner. Because you chose to lose, because you gave up, because you surrender, I declare you winner. By sheer grace, yes, you should be destroyed. Yes, I should crush you. But I declare you winner by sheer grace. Even Jacob, he's astounded. Jacob says, what is your name? Who are you? I deserve to die, but you declare me a winner? And then he knew. Then he realized who it was. He names the place Peniel, meaning I saw God face to face. And he limps away, and he's totally changed. He never walks the same again. Jacob will never walk the same again. Down to the end, you see the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob's got a cane. Never walks the same again. And his son rises above him as he walks away. Incredibly beautiful. Incredibly beautiful. Just even as a piece of literature, incredibly beautiful, right? But it's not just a metaphor. It's almost as if, here's this man. The sun has been setting on his life, all his life. And now, he's received his blessing. God has blessed him. The sun rises above Jacob, and he's blessed. And there's peace, and he knows there's resolution. Now, what do you learn from this? We've got to close with, what do we learn from all of this? One, what do you take away? Every one of us here is wrestling with God. If you've ever blamed anybody in your life, right now, if you're blaming other people, blaming yourself, beating yourself up because of bad mistakes that you've made, blaming the world or blaming society, blaming God, do you know why you're doing that? It's because you think your problem is Esau. You have something out there that is the source of all of your problems. Your real problem, though, is that you don't trust God. And that's why you're blaming other people. That's why you're running away from your problems. That's why you're trying to overpower things by taking matters into your own hands. It's because you're wrestling God. Who or what is your Jacob? Number two, what is wrestling? Wrestling is you gotta be, you're alone. It's a personal thing. It requires focus. It's a struggle. It's a fight. And it's also lots of suffering. And a lot of times, of course, with God, there's intimacy. Of course, with God, there's tremendous comfort. Of course, with God, there's tremendous satisfaction. But trust me, I'm a pastor. A lot of times, oftentimes, wrestling, wrestling, a relationship with God, intimate relationship with God is wrestling. Jacob limps for the rest of his life, but he's seen God. He knows God. He's known by God. God gives him a name, and now he's awake. Every one of us here has suffered. Every one of us here has wounds. Every one of us here has been beaten up or you're beating yourself up. 
I don't want to denigrate anything that anybody's going through here, but let me ask you, have your wounds helped to wake you up? Have your wounds, are they shaping you? How do you know that you're awake? What is your limp? What does your limp look like? Thirdly, Jacob is clinging, right? He's clinging to God. He says, you're the blessing. I need you in my life. I need you to bless me. I need more of you because you are the blessing. I need more of you in my life. What is that? When you sit and you look to the Lord and you say, you are the blessing. I need more of you. What are you doing? You're praying. You're praying. You're not praying for more other blessings. You're saying, I need more of you in my life. I need to be more intimate with you. I need to know you more. I need to know your will more. I want to submit more. I want to surrender more. I want to understand more. I want to shape, be shaped by you more. If you're coming to God and saying, God, I need more of this in my life, what you're saying is, you're the one that's gonna, that I'm negotiating with to help me get more of my blessing. But Jacob, listen to the words of Jacob. All his life he's, he's been seeking. All of his life he's been clinging to other things and it's led him to ruin and lots of pain and lots of suffering and lots of aloneness brokenness in his life that's such as it is but when he turned to god and he said i realize you are, i've been wanting all these things but these things are just a shadow of who you are these things are just a shadow a picture a very faint glimmer of the beauty of you i'm looking at rachel but actually you're the beauty i'm looking at wealth and land and and livestock but you are the richness I'm looking at comfort and joy and peace, but the, you are comfort, you are joy, you are peace, and all these other things. It satisfies me for a little while, and then it takes me south. It brings me under, and I'm broken, and I'm tired, and I'm still looking for that sense of worth. I'm still looking for approval. I'm still looking for a sense of righteousness in my life. Prayer is saying that. That's prayer, to know God to know his will, to desire more. That's prayer. Notice sometime after, pretty much immediately after this passage, Jacob actually meets Esau, but he's not scared anymore. In verse 7, chapter 32, verse 7, it says there's great fear. Going forward, you don't see him afraid anymore. Why? What's the change? Think about it. Once you see God face to face, what more is there to fear? Jacob has been broken and humbled, and yet there's a renewed sense of confidence, a real confidence, a real confidence, because he's given a new name by the only one who can give you a name, the only one who can approve, the only one who can bestow righteousness, the only one who can credit righteousness to you. Jacob, Jacob has found that. Utter confidence. There's a humility and there's a confidence. Cling to Christ. Pray to, Christ, pray to God. Trust. Don't just go to God for the blessings. Go to him as the blessing. He is the blessing. Seek him. Trust him. Don't just trust in him. Trust him. Listen to his word. Listen to his word. Lastly, Jacob deserved to die, but he was barely touched. Essentially, he was barely touched. Yet, so it's not so much that Little by little, he's worn down and he finally gives up. Jacob thought at one point he was winning. And then all of a sudden, with just a touch, he was broken. And yet God chose not to consume him altogether. That's confusing. That's really confusing. Scholars and commentators across the board 
utterly confused by this text. I mean, they're saying, well, why didn't the text just say God chose? Let's just be straight here. Why didn't God just say, I chose not to overcome, and so I touched Jacob at the hip? I mean, if God demonstrates his power to the full, his wrath to the full, Jacob would have died, the seed of the promise would have ended, the line would have been wiped out. Why does, why does God choose not to overcome? It's because God, then God would have been vindictive. You know, God's anger is not a vindictive anger. God's anger is a loving anger. Now you say, some of you say, well, that doesn't make sense. How can you be angry and loving at the same time? Have children. Have children. You'll understand. When you have children, what happens is, forget about, we have a lot of young children. Wait till the children grows up to about 15 or 16. And they're out. You're wondering what they're doing, but you don't have to wonder because you know what you were like when you were 15 or 16, right? So when you're 15 or 16, you're thinking, wow, the heartache I caused my parents, the heartache I caused, the worry, the anxiety, what happens is they come home and you're so angry, right? It looks like wrath, but it's really love. You see them making that bad life decision and you know they're headed straight to it. It's going to be a train wreck. And the thing is, there's no stopping it. And it hurts you and you're so angry, Right? Why? It's because you love. The anger is great because the love is great. The love, the anger is actually proportional to that love. And so here is God. If you were to throw his full wrath onto Jacob, it would have just been vindictive anger. Jacob would have been smited. There would be justice. But then where's the love? Right? The line would have been wiped out. And God would come out as vindictive and impetuous, much like Esau, and vindictive and, and uh, impetuous and wrathful. But more importantly, he would have been a liar too. He would have become a Jacob. He had made a promise, and the promise would have come to an end right there. There would be no more line. There would be no more redeemer. There would be no more savior. God would have become Jacob, you see. But God is faithful, incredibly faithful, and so he touches Jacob's hip. And really, what he's, the reason why, he, the, word, the Hebrew word for hip here is actually the word thigh. The thigh in the ancient times for a man was a symbol of his power because it's the groin area. The thigh was a representation of a man's power because it was a representation of the man's sex organ, right? But it really represented the man's descendants. May you have lots of sons, because to have lots of sons was to be wealthy because of primogeniture, but also because the more sons you have, the more land you can work. And it was an agrarian culture. So the thigh represented power for a man. And so on one hand, the man touches Jacob's thigh and throws it out, because what he's saying is, your greatest strength I'm throwing out, just at a touch. I am the true power. But on the other hand, he's saying, I am sparing you but I'm throwing out your hip as a representation that one day one of your descendants will have the full wrath thrown on him. That's the thigh. represents his descendants. One day I will throw out one of your descendants to the full. My full wrath will come down on him. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 to 5. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Centuries later, Jesus Christ, God's own son, and the descendant of Jacob came down. 
Not to come and strike with the full wrath of God, but to absorb the full wrath of God. Jesus Christ came in weakness. Jesus Christ came in humility. Jesus Christ came in grace. Jesus Christ limited himself. He becomes defenseless and vulnerable. And on the cross, Jesus Christ was wrenched. Jesus Christ is reeling. Jesus Christ is powerless. Jesus Christ is defeated. He was overcome. On the cross, he could have said, you know what, I've had it. I've had enough of this. I'm going to wipe everybody out. He could have, and he would have been just to do so. But instead, he chose to be overcome. He says, Father, forgive them, but they don't know what they do. And he was overcome. Why does he do that? If God defeats Jacob, the deceiver, by being overcome by Jacob, then Jesus Christ defeats the ultimate Jacob, the ultimate deceiver, death itself, Satan himself, the enemy itself, and he does it through his weakness, he does it through his brokenness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin become sin. Jacob says, this is my name, the enemy. I am the enemy. I am sin. I deserve to die. God made him who had no sin become sin, become the enemy. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become approved by God. We would be blessed by God. You know, you know what that means? On the cross, Jesus Christ became the curse so that we would be blessed. Jesus Christ was cast out. Why? So we would be brought in. We would be acceptable to him. We would be approved by him. That makes Jesus Christ the greater Jacob. He's the greater Jacob because in Jesus, true power becomes ultimate weakness. Why? So that we who are utterly weak, we are Jacob. You think you're upright. You think you're gaining ground. You think you're building your life. You are Jacob at his best. He was thrown out and desperate and broken. But that we could have power. What do you see on the cross? There's another storm. There's another darkness. This darkness came over the land. There was another, there's an earthquake. Jesus Christ on the cross, he was literally riding the storm. Jacob got the sun, Jesus Christ got darkness, and on the cross he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's really saying here is, now I am riding the real storm of God's wrath. God's wrath is being poured out on him. He says, I am riding the ultimate storm of God's wrath. And I'm wrestling, and I'm being overcome, and it's finished. And he says, I've given up my spirit. Into your hands, I give up. What is he doing? He's surrendering himself. He chose to be overcome. On the cross, Jesus says, I'm forsaken. I cannot see your face. I'm cursed. If seeing God's face is to be blessed, then I didn't receive the benediction. I received the malediction. I received the curse. This is the real terror. This is the ultimate aloneness. This is the true darkness. This is what it means to really suffer, to really wrestle. And yet, do you know, he still clung to God. He says, my God, my God. He still clung to God. He says, I will not let you go. My God, my God, he says. It's amazing. When the gospel penetrates your life, you're saved through the brokenness of Christ. That's the model for salvation. If you're trying to save yourself, everything else 
Every other model of salvation says you've got to build, you've got to work. And in order to work, you've got to labor, you've got to scheme, you've got to plan, you've got to control things, you've got to manipulate. You've got to manipulate to gain people's approval. You've got to manipulate to work it. You have to work it. That's what you've got to do. And that leads to brokenness. When the gospel penetrates your life, you look at Christ as the model for, for salvation. Jacob, when he was trying to become great on his own, it led to suffering and weakness. Only when you say, my life is hid with Christ on high, he took my sin and he blessed me with his righteousness. You have to let that shape you. Then you will have power. That is power. Celebrate anything else, you're still fighting Esau. Celebrate anything else, you're still wrestling with God. Celebrate celebrate anything else, you are looking for blessings still in your loss. But if you get personal with God, if you focus on this moment, this time, if you fight and wrestle and argue and conflict and counter with God and let him counter you, let him argue with you, let him try to you know, reason and, and, and convince you, you're developing a relationship with God. That's how it starts. It can't be that way to the end. You, that's how it starts. You look at your suffering and then you look at the wounds of Christ. You put it all together. That's, what, that's Jacob as he's wrestling. It's all coming together. God comes in power. You know, a God who just comes in power, that's scary. That's the dread. Rob, Rudolph Otto said, that's the dread. You're going to get consumed. Holiness is consuming. But when God comes with his wounds before you, that's an invitation. That's inviting. That's going to give you comfort. That's the blessing that we need. That's what we need. Friends, will you, this week, as we're struggling and fighting our way, will you turn to Christ and see his wrestling for you, the ultimate wrestling for you, the ultimate defeat so that you have power? So you can have real power, power to overcome sin. Jacob's a changed man after that. You know, we're not going to get into this text, but later on, Jacob's son Joseph becomes, through a series of events, becomes pretty much the most powerful man in Egypt. And in his main pilgrimage, Jacob and, and his son reunite. Joseph, they reunite. And later on, Joseph has sons, and sure enough, one is older and one is younger. And Joseph comes to his father and says, I want you to bless my sons. And Jacob, looking at the older son at his right hand and the younger son at his left hand, what does he do? He gets it. He crosses his arms, and he prays on them. Joseph says, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're old. You're senile. And And Jacob says, I know exactly what I'm doing because I get it. Will you get it? Let's pray.